Right, a quick recap, not as extensive as last time, just to set the scene. We left halfway through persecution last time. Well, it wasn't halfway through. I was suggesting that there was a different view of the persecution, the way it affected Christians. So from the last time, Roman persecution that we were looking at lasted for about 250 years. And about 20% of that time was actual persecution. Persecution initially was... uh, 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 governed by the local authorities in the later periods it was more empire-wide directed by the emperors um, it was to be remembered uh, for the for the sake of our christian brothers and sisters that they lived for those 250 years with the threat of persecution constantly over them persecution wasn't applied geographically uh, consistently or in severity consistently uh, we know from our New Testament that, um, that uh, Paul, uh, Paul was treated differently because he was a Roman citizen. There was this strata of uh, uh, treatments. Roman citizens, even with serious crime, would be beheaded or dispatched quickly. Uh, maybe freedmen would be less so. And the barbarians, the slaves and Christians who would fall into the pagan barbarian category would be treated worse of all. The principle being that severe punishment was always uh, dished out to serve the crime, but it was the way in which they treated the actual individual once that crime was being uh, punished. And in many ways, it was a deterrence for these people. Don't be a Christian. Barbarianism won't do you any good. Uh, And slaves, you know what you should be doing in that sense. As with last time, brief recap, yes, a word, hierarchicalism, which is a word I do like, it's in some ways meaningless until I put it into some sort of context for you, and we have a triangle, we have this idea of a structure. Now, I would argue that we all work subconsciously or consciously within these types of structures. I've done one there for uh, a work scenario, but you could have Pope, Archbishop at the top, you could have Bishop, Cardinal, you could have Priest, Vicar at the bottom. We have a structure. And I would also argue that from my uh, review of history and some of the work I've done on history, It's something that I'm mindful of when you're looking for what caused this. Why did they do this? When things seem quite strange and we're always working from limited resources in the ancient times, trying to work out if they were working to a strategy sometimes helps. One of the areas in which I might be able to explain it is if we look at the word saint. Now from our Protestant Reformed tradition. Remember that we work with biases. That's our tradition. We have to be mindful of our biases. We are used to the general evangelical statement of a saint being a believer. We're all saints. Uh, Those that have died are still saints. Uh, We have one category. And we become very nervous of Roman Catholicism that will have, from our perspective in this country... Adoration of saints, mentioning of saints, saints appearing in their churches. And of course, as Protestants, our bias says, oh, that's wrong. 
but we need to really understand why this position has developed. And again, I would suggest it comes back to this hierarchicalism. Originally, we would see saints as just simple Christians. But in the age of the early martyrs, straight away you've got Christians who are called to pay the ultimate price for their faith. And in some respects, they were seen as special. Now, you think, well, that's ridiculous, they're just saints. But here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about named individuals. They weren't necessarily special in God's eyes, but we as mankind have put them into a position of something that they have done special. So you've got a, a level of martyrdom. You've got normal Christians who haven't been martyred. And then as martyrdom ceases in the Roman period, as the Roman period starts to contract, you then have other special categories coming in. And so we need to work out where do we think of these people. These people might be uh, in a monastery. They might have dedicated themselves to a very godly life or they've done something very worthy. But we straight away start to put people in these imaginary lists in our own minds. Now, the formal process that we know of in Roman Catholicism of making a saint, it's a formal process that the, the church goes through, is referred to as, as canonization. It is a process, but this was very much a late development around the 10th century. So, a thousand years ago, ancient history from our perspective, but when we're just looking at those first five centuries, this idea was still some way off, and uh, we're not going there today. Now, Easter and Xmas. Now, I brought this in because this is one of the early controversies within the Christian church. And again, as a reminder, there was just one Christian church, one Catholic church. There was no sense of being differing churches. You might have had your bishop living in Antioch, and there might have been a bishop in Rome, a bishop in Antioch. You were still considered to be part of that one single church. But this was a controversy uh, that almost split the church. Now, we've always had holy days. And again, we've got to move out of our prejudicial views the holy days are the ones instituted by Christ is today, the Sunday, 52 holy days. Um, we're not talking about extra days, we're talking about the Sunday, which is fundamental to our uh, Christian faith, but also was the, the fundamental date, day in which the early church focused. And I've already mentioned, and I think the first session, how... In the very early days, after Christ had uh, departed, after his resurrection, ascension, um, there was conflict within the Jewish Christian minds as to which day they should follow. They'd been brought up in the main as, as Jewish peoples, and they worshipped God on the Sabbath. Now we have this transition with the resurrection, and the Christian Sabbath being effectively the Sunday. And history does record problems where people in their confusion 
and wanting to do the right thing would go along to the temple or the tabula, uh, the synagogue on a Saturday and would go to a worship Christian service on the Sunday. Eventually, over time, we talked about this, the two were separated out by various, uh, the diaspora and the ultimate destruction of temple in AD 70. The issue that we're looking at now is got a great title, the Quattro Decimanism, or Decima. Quattro Decima is Latin for 14th. It really was quite a simple issue, and it's quite disturbing, as always, that simple issues uh, can cause big consequences. 14th, it meant the day of the Jewish month Nisan. And this is the historical date on which the Passover took place, the preparation for the Passover on which Christ died. When nobody's disputing that chronology. But half the church was wanting to make a festival or a special day out of this uh, lunar calendar date which could fall on any one of the seven days. The other part of the church wanted to do it on the Sunday. So straight away, and this is about 155 AD, our friend Polycarp, who was martyred, he wasn't martyred last week, he was martyred in the, the session last week, uh, he made a trip from Asia Minor, he was Bishop of Smyrna, and he went across to visit the Roman bishop, um, Anicetus, I think it's pronounced. Um, he was also of Syrian origin, so he was from a part of the world, again, where Polycarp came from, but he held the alternate view. Polycarp believed the tradition that you would went with the 14th of Nisan. Uh, the Roman bishop held to the view that it had to be a Sunday. But these two men met, they argued their respective positions, and in many ways, Polycarp was arguing his tradition from John. John was the apostle who'd visited that part of Asia and whose, at whose feet Polycarp had sat. The Roman bishop was arguing from his traditional apostolic position, which was of Paul and Peter uh, influencing the, the uh, Italian Roman church, as it were. Now, these two gentlemen were able to agree that they shouldn't disagree on this point, and they respected each other's position whilst not conceding any point. In fact, uh, the Roman bishop invited Polycarp to celebrate the Lord's Supper with him, uh, which was considered uh, a great honour for you to do that in that sense. So we see it as a great sense of keeping the unity of the one church, even if that meant being uneasy with a position somebody else had taken, remembering that it was over which day Easter fell on. Was it going to be the lunar day, Monday to Sunday, uh, or would it be just the Sunday? Now, in time, the developments, which I'll go through quickly, um, there was various synods, localised synods, um, discussing this particular issue. And in 193, the Roman... It was still in a period of persecution. So this was all happening whilst the church was still under persecution. 
193, Victor, who was the Bishop of Rome at that time, had the consensus from what we're going to call the Western churches. And he wrote a letter, um, and the church historian Eusebius gives us detail on this. But basically they came to the unanimous conclusion that the celebration of Easter should be observed and be exclusively on the Sunday. Now, we're talking about it as being a Western position, and we're going to talk about Polycarp, who was long since dead, died about 156, 457, um, the Eastern position. It wasn't as clear-cut as that, but for our purposes, I'll make that distinction. Um, they then, he then wrote to the other churches in the East saying, this is what you're going to do, lads. And on receipt of that, they'd already discussed it amongst themselves. Because there was no instant communication of email. There's correspondence that would take some time. And it was very much a case of, who does this Bishop of Rome think he is? So he had no authority over the other churches. And the other bishops stood firm on that point. When Victor heard this, he was most put out. And he was talking then of putting them outside of the church. So he was assuming he had the authority to, to do so, um, which the Eastern churches uh, would not accept. Thankfully, there are a number of other bishops, some from Gaul, Arrhenius, Bishop of Lyon, we talked about him last time. He made representation to uh, Victor uh, with others to basically say, you know, just cool it a bit. Let's just see how things pan out. Let's not be silly talking about excommunication. We need to try and keep this spirit of unity. And in many ways, that's what Victor did at that time. Where does this end up? Well, in time, we're talking about 193, Victor uh, writing, and then that sort of time, the end of that uh, century, when he was talking about excommunication, in 325, at the Great Council of Nicaea, which we'll discuss at some point in the next three sessions, uh, it was one of the points that was discussed. And at that time, the Emperor Constantine I, or Constantine the Great, said that it had been decided to adopt a uniform date rejecting the custom of the Jews. So from 325, the, the matter was settled. But up to that point there was this worry that it could have actually split the church. Now, Xmas, and I, will, I use the term intendedly. Um, right. It goes without saying that the birth date of Jesus is not recorded in Scripture, nor is there any command to commemorate it. Unlike Easter, which of course was an East, a, a Jewish tradition that was carried forward, there was no similar ceremony carried forward from the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition doesn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Um, also, we know that Josephus, first century uh, Jewish uh, historian, uh, he informed us that from their laws and their principles, that they didn't make festivals at the birth of their children. So, in every likelihood... The very early church, the church that was made out of Jewish Christians that was spreading quickly through the diaspora, through the Roman Empire, 
would have had no consciousness or thought towards the Christmas that we're aware of today. Moving on slightly, Tertullian, uh, mainly second century writer from uh, North Africa, um, he wrote, uh, so Christians should not partake in their festivals, their festivals being pagan festivals. Rather, they have a festive day every week. Sorry, rather, they have, the Christians, a festive day every week, whereas pagans celebrate only once a year. When the world rejoices, let us grieve, and when the world afterwards grieves, we shall rejoice. So I have the opinion that Tertullian here is identifying the fact that Christians were celebrating a festival in the wintertime. He actually identifies it with the uh, Saturnalia, um, uh, the uh, winter solstice period of festivals. Other historians, even modern historians, identify these winter festivals and others that where they clashed, the Christians almost Christianized them or made a form similar to them. Historically, there's very little evidence that there was any church, early church practice of Christmas. Uh, there are a few references, but interestingly, there's no controversy about dates. Uh, and yet, the dates today are still not uniform within Christendom. Uh, within the West, you will still have 25th being of December being the major holiday, but a lot in Europe will celebrate the 24th, and their festivities will be uh, on Christmas Eve to the, to the midnight point. In the Eastern churches, they still, in the majority, take the 6th of January. And in certain cases, I think there's a, a, an Orthodox Arminian church that would still do their Jerusalem services on the 19th. And on their website, website still, they will identify the fact that they considered that the Roman church, as they now see it, were influenced by paganism at that time, whereas we weren't because we weren't as influenced by the influx of uh, pagans into the society, and we've been more true. But they're not the only little denomination that claims to have the full truth. I just merely point out that there is a great difference even today. One little anecdote from my mother is that my mother didn't like the word Xmas. That's why I put it in. She didn't like Xmas because she considered the X crossed Christ out. And if you do research, you'll find that there was a, a 1977 a New Hampshire uh, governor called Meldrum Thompson, he sent out a press release, and you can find a copy of uh, this release in the, in the, the press today, um, in the uh, records of old newspapers. Uh, he wanted journalists to keep the Christ in Christmas and not call it Christmas, which he called a pagan spelling of Christmas. Now, he wasn't the first to come up with that. There were some other Americans I think it goes back to the 60s and possibly even before that, into the maybe 1930s, that they were obsessed with the idea of the X cancelling out. 
total ignorance, I'm afraid. Uh, this um, picture, it's not my own photograph. Um, it's from uh, Ravenna, a mosque, uh, Ravenna in northern, uh, the Adriatic coast of uh, Italy. Uh, a big Byzantine uh, capital at one point, after a fall of Constantinople, I would imagine. Uh, but this is from the 4th and 5th century, and we've got the clear X for Chi and the P for Rho. The first, not first two letters, two letters of the uh, Greek alphabet, which would be an abbreviation for Christ. And the abbreviation for Christ being down to the single letter X, or the X and the uh, P, which uh, they have been known to have been used a lot longer than the word Christmas has in that sense. So 5th century, you've got the X and the P, and interestingly, you've also got the A for Alpha and the Omega, again Greek, beginning in the end. So it's quite a strong theological statement, 4th, 5th century AD. I think that's enough on that. Right, Constantine the Great. Now, I mentioned another great, and that was Alexander the Great. Uh, I did suggest that possibly in the first three centuries BC he was the most influential man, um, and he was, and he, he still has an effect even on us today. Um, Constantine the Great, um, born in a place called Niz in Serbia, what is now Serbia. Um, father, born in 272, his father was Flavius Valerius Constantius, and I am nervous as anything that I'm going to get the names wrong because he named all his children Constant something, and he named his cities and other places Constant something, so there's an awful lot of these names going around. Um, he was one of the four original members of the uh, Tetrarchy that we briefly showed you a picture last time. Uh, Diocletian splits his empire into four sectors for administrative purposes. Uh, they had two what were called Augustus or emperors, men in chief, and then two sub-emperors known as Caesars. So you had these four sectors. Now, one of these sectors went to Constantius. He was from a humble origin. Uh, he married uh, Constantine the Great's mother, Helena, uh, who is an interesting character in herself, in, in her own right. Um, she came from very humble stock, it even suggested either a barmaid or working in a, uh, an inn, um, quite disparagingly, although Eusebius, the historian, was a great fan of Constantine, Constantine the Great and wrote and corrected many of these injustices, which we need to be careful of because he did was a big fanboy of... Uh, Constantine. Um, unfortunately, because Constantius had his eye on the prize, he found it necessary to, and it's a lovely phrase, put aside Helena, uh, divorce her because she was of low stock. And he married uh, the daughter of the Emperor Maximian. And again, it was a political move. It happens, still happens in royalty. Uh, even the last few centuries, these are political weddings for advancement and to an extent keep your enemies close. Um, now, 
Constantine the Great, is the son. Now, he was given a formal education in Diocletian's court. Now, this was, again, a case of the trend was for the heir to assume the crown on the death of the, uh, the incumbent. And therefore, it made sense for uh, Diocletian to keep these heirs close because this is where his competitors were going to come for. Any false move, any illness, anything, assassination by the Senate, anything like that, and there would have been a number of men ready to move, and they had to be ready. Um, even a simple cold or a, a slight cut in those days could end in death fairly quickly, and that happened until penicillin, penicillin became widespread. Uh, even in the First World War, many men died because they couldn't receive proper medication. It's a fact, so that's very recent in these terms. Uh, Helena, or Helena, she was thought to have been a Christian. Um, we've got no, I've not seen any real evidence of when that might have happened, and it might be a presumption on the fact that somebody must have given some guidance to uh, <coughs> Constantine the Great and her great efforts in later life, which we'll talk about in another occasion. Um, now, Constantine recognised the great danger that he was in, trying to please the emperor, or the Augustus, um, at that point, Diocletian had taken early retirement on ill health grounds. Uh, Galerius was uh, the man in charge, and he kept a close eye on him. His father, Constantinus, made a request for his son to help him in campaigning against difficult Britons in the north. Uh, not, not Yorkshire, but further north. Um, and after, apparently after a long evening of drinking, Galerius um, uh, granted this request and Constantine fled. And uh, he went by horseback as quickly as he could to the channel ports uh, of Bologna because he was fearful that uh, any, any delay, it could easily be rescinded. So he saw an opportunity and uh, he went. Now, at this point, um, he, met, he joined up with his father. He had about a year serving with his father fighting uh, in, in the north. This was way up beyond Hadrian's Wall. There was another wall, the, I think it was called Antonian Wall, way, quite a bit, Soloway Firth seems to come to mind across there. Quite a bit higher than that, and they, they uh, had adventures north of that, uh, crushing the uh, Picts, Celts, or Britons, whatever they wanted to be called. Uh, at that point, and apparently Constantius had had sickness over a period, uh, but he was uh, taken seriously ill, retreated to York, where there was the legionnaires' fort. If you remember right back to the beginning, we talked about uh, three main forts, one at Caerleon, and near Newport, Chester, and at York. Chester was here in existence before York. York was a few years afterwards, it was more important because of its position for the, the problems ahead. Chester was much more safe, and in fact, Chester, because of its port access, would have been supplying men and supplies up for various construction works up there, but that's an aside. 
Um, on his deathbed, uh, Constantius made it known that he'd like his son, surprisingly, to take over from him. And his soldiers, who were seasoned soldiers, uh, took up this cause. This fact alone is believed to have basically brought the Diocletian uh, Tetrarchy to, en to its end. Um, and eventually, uh, uh, we'll talk about his conversion in a moment, but eventually uh, Constantine the Great would again unify uh, Rome in about 324. Uh, by one means or another. How are we doing for time? Not so bad. Right. There you are, just for Beryl. There's a picture there of the, the, in York Minster. Apparently, there is a marker in the crypt at York that denotes the point where this uh, passing of power was to take place. Now, Constantine's share of the empire consisted of Britain, Gaul, uh, France, and Spain. Bits of the lowlands and bits of Germany. We're not going to get too precise about the geography. Um, and he had a very strong army because the Rhine frontier was always problematic in some ways for the, for the Romans. It was also useful because the, the Franks and the Germans above would always pose a threat. And emperors, um, as my reading of the, of the history, would quite often go over there and have a little battle with the Germans and the Franks to get a victory, uh, to, to boost their positions up at home. So it, it happened uh, in, in a number of uh, uh, periods of different emperors. But they were always, always troublesome. There was always a strong army there. Um, he then, well, he went, yeah, he defeated the Franks in 305, three, oh, sorry, 306 is when he came to power. 307, they were battling in the Rhine. And it's interesting that the defeated kings and some of the soldiers that were taken prisoners were fed to the beasts in Trier's amphitheatre. Trier, I believe, is a town uh, in Germany today. It was the centre for this quarter of the empire. It was the headquarters, as it were. It wasn't Britain, it was over there. It's just, just over the border from Luxembourg on, on the western side there. But again, you've got this, um, the celebration of his successes was dealt with by uh, the sacrifice of the victims to the animals in the amphitheater. He played a very clever game and I mention this because we'll deal with Constantine in later weeks, but he seemed to be a very astute leader. And in many respects, he allowed others to, to sort out problems and create problems and deal with issues, whilst he just kept himself to himself, close at hand, but not to get too drawn into some of these other issues I'm talking about being brought into making alliances with other powerful men who sought the crown, as it were. He sort of stood back and just watched what happened. Now I'll go to the conversion of Constantine. At the bottom of this plinth, it, it says something to the lines of, uh, in this sign, conquer, or in this sign, you will conquer. There's various translations. There's various stories of the conversion. depends... Even Eusebius, I think, gives two different versions, but I'll try and narrow it down. Um, the, I've not even got his name down. The emperor at the time 
stayed in Rome and he felt that he could defeat Constantine uh, where he was. This allowed Constantine to slowly move towards him and win popular support amongst the, the Roman peoples in Italy, the hardcore uh, constituents, if you like. Um, on the way, we don't know exactly when, um, although uh, Eusebius gives us a date, uh, it's 27th of October 312. Uh, that was the date of the battle, I believe, but I think sometime before that, he had a vision, and this vision was this image of a cross, and apparently later uh, he had a vision of Christ explaining to him that he would have the victory. Under this sign, you will have the victory. Um, the other Roman, general, uh, the actual uh, seated uh, Augusta in Rome, he also consulted the pagan gods, and he got an assurance uh, that he would win on the day, or that Rome would win on the day, or something like that. Uh, he made a rash move, destroying the bridge, the, the Milvian Bridge, um, and put his army on the other side of the Tiber. And of course, he relied upon a floating, uh, like a pontoon for a, an escape area, but Constantine apparently came across in linear form they had nowhere to go except the Tiber, and uh, they were pushed back into the Tiber and thoroughly defeated. Uh, we know that the emperor died because his body was found, his head was taken off, and he was paraded around the city of Rome. Romans didn't like to take somebody's word for it. They had hard evidence in those days. Um, now, there's, there's two accounts, but again, the sign is the sign... Oh, it's there, wasn't it? I moved it on. Uh, this medallion printed in about 315, so the battle was late 312 by 315, and this is an enlargement there. It's this Greek letter X, Chi, and the Greek letter C as a, as a P, as we'd see it as Rho, and the two letters of, of Christ. I, I doubt whether this is the helmet that he went into battle. In more likely circumstance, it would have been quickly scrubbed on a, a standard and it would have been easy to write the big letters X and P on the shields. And tradition says that they, they put it on their shields. Uh, but this clearly indicates from that date this uh, identity with the Christian religion, with Christ at that point. Um, how we, we look upon that... Well, maybe we should consider that when we know a bit more about Constantine. But I think we... Uh, let's have a look. We've got the map there, haven't we? Right. This is a map I've used before. We've got... Where are we going now? We've got York up there at the top. That's where he was uh, proclaimed Augustus. Trier was his base, power, power base. Rome is there. And Carthage, we'll bring Carthage into play down in North Carthage. Carthaginians were one of the earliest conquests in the Republican days, I think about two or 300 BC. I can't remember now. But we're going to look and pick up this persecution. And this had an interesting bearing oh, right. uh, on how it had an effect upon the Christians. Um, Diocletian, in an edict, in 303, 
that basically prohibited gatherings, Christian churches, books, Christian worship, and deprived Christians generally of their civil rights. Uh, when this ordinance was executed, uh, uh, poor use of words, uh, was enacted in the, uh, in the empire, uh, there was a bit of an uproar in Nicomedia, which was one of the uh, places in Asia Minor, think somewhere near Istanbul, Constantinople, uh, that sort of area. Uh, a young man, a Christian, mutilated a copy of this edict and was burned alive. And the church that bordered, or the house church that bordered onto the imperial palace was destroyed. Um, this Long story short, uh, they ratcheted up, I think there was about four edicts in all. Um, now, during these persecutions, these were known as the Great Persecutions, the Diocletian Great Persecutions, they were particularly uh, severe, I've lost my map, in Egypt, North Africa, and in the East. In Constantius's, the father of Constantine the Great, in the area that he was in control of, there might have been some churches in Gaul that he uh, possessed. But as far as we know, uh, he didn't pursue Christians anymore. But that could just be Eusebius kindly writing the history after the events. We don't know. Uh, there was very little Christian activity, if any at all, that we know of in, in uh, Britain at that time. Now... Those that renounced Christianity were spared. Uh, those who refused, especially those caught with Christian texts, uh, that refused to hand them over or to destroy them, they were usually killed. Now these texts were important. Normally these texts would have been the forms of scrolls, they might have been some small parchments, we don't know exactly, but they wouldn't be paper books as we know today. And normally you would expect them to be in the hands of the clergy, either the minister or a reader. They might not have had a defined minister. They might have had somebody who just read the scriptures. Um, so find, find the texts, find the ministers, sort the Christians out would have been a, a general sort of principle. Now, some of the Christian uh, clergy uh, resisted and they were martyred. And many did not and renounced Christianity. They allowed their books to be burned. Um, this is also true of uh, many of the laity, the, the simple Christians, but they wouldn't have necessarily be holding the text in the first place. Various documents, very recently in these Egyptian papyrus, or pap I don't know what plural of papyrus is, papyri, um, is uh, some of them are quite detailed and they strike me as being very similar to what we would know as a bailiff's document. So they would actually list, and it's almost a checklist for the soldiers to take round with them, as detailed as this that urban estates, the land confiscated, buildings confiscated, slaves, animals, gold, silver, equipment, clothing, money confiscated. Anything that effectively could be sold and turned into cash would be sucked back into the Roman system. The scrolls, the scriptures, were destroyed. There's no, no monetary value to a document that you don't want people to have in that sense. There weren't secret collectors putting them on one side thinking 2,000 years there'll be a bob or two to be made. Um, 
they were also fastidious in the way that they kept some of their records. I've not been able to track this document down, but in one church, they took away 300 scrolls or books. Now, scrolls, probably uh, the books would have been individual books of the Bible. But at that sort of number, you're talking about possibly having the canon of scripture that we're aware of in, 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 a, in a, a separated form in their possession. Uh, a lot of these documents were done in triplicates. They would have had dictation to scribes. And there were also documents for people to make the allegiance to the emperor, which would have been written down. And we have copies of those. And as with any good manuscript, you put the picture up, it's got a lot of uh, ancient writing on, and I tell you what it means because I've read what somebody told me it means. It's, it, we can't read them in that sense. Even the scholars, it's a painstaking attempt to actually work it out. It's painstaking to actually separate them out to see what's actually said. Um, out of this position, so we have the persecution, severe persecution, and we have some people that give in and some people that resist. And out of that comes this word, traditor. Traditor, the one who handed over. Um, also, the origin, I'm not an expert in any sense of my own language, never mind another language, but uh, the word traitor is evolved from this. The word uh, tradition also has its origins in this word. But in this sense, it was handing of the over of the scriptures. Um, now, again, it would have mainly been the clergy, those in responsibility of whatever type of church was there, who would have held these. And this then caused a problem, because after this persecution period, and mainly talking about it being um, 303, 305, um, Philip Schaff, famous early 19th century, 18th, 19th century. I'm looking for nods, but I haven't got my glasses on. Um, in this, as in former persecutions, the number of apostates who preferred the earthly life to the heavenly was very great. To these was now added also the new class of traditores, which plural, who delivered the holy scriptures to the heathen authorities to be burned. Now, there then rose up a grouping, I'll deal with it very quickly because we'll carry this on to next week. The Donatists was a grouping that were then formed. They were unhappy. They were very, think of them as fundamentalists. The church must be a church of saints, not sinners. Uh, and they considered that sacraments administered by Tories <coughs> were invalid. So we've got this issue. There were those within the church that were forgiving of people's weaknesses and there were those who were not. This became a, a, a headline uh, a point in about 311 when a bishop, uh, Cassilian, uh, that's his right pronunciation, he was installed as the Bishop of Carthage and he had been consecrated by a bishop or a, a minister who was called Felix of Aptongi an alleged traditor. So there was this lineage of, you've been made a bishop by him, but we don't think he is fit to make you a bishop, so we don't accept you as bishop. We will have our own, thank you very much. They brought in their own man, who didn't last very long through uh, 
no reason of uh, mischief. But by 315, uh, 311, this guy was put in that caused the upset. By 315, these Donatists, the man in charge, the bishop, was Donatus Magnus, who gives his name to this grouping. Now, it then gets interesting, but we'll carry that in, this is a, to get you back next week. We haven't got time to deal with why it's interesting, but we will cover that next week. But you've already then got this situation where, for the first time, we have two churches. Even though it's just localised in this area, you've got the Catholic Church and you've got the real Catholic Church, as they would see themselves, the Donatists. So within one area, and there were quite a significant number of them, that they were then saying, no, we're not part of that, we have split off. Uh, I'm going to leave it there, and we shall come back to it next time. Any questions? <laughs> Speak up. Yes, sir. Um, just for clarity on the 